something earlier. The fruit of keeping the gospel of priority it necessarily requires our consideration of others as a result of setting aside what we think we would want for our preferences for the sake of the gospel. It helps move things in a different direction. So what are some differences between demanding our rights and preaching Christ versus foregoing our rights for the gospel? When I demand my rights, the focus is easily about me. I am kind of blind to others a lot of times. Foregoing my rights, whatever I might be, the gospel is a clear priority over my freedom. Demanding my rights easily escalates situations. Pride comes in, we get puffed up. Foregoing our rights for the gospel makes it easier to apologize. We take our ego out of things. It opens the door to a love that actually builds up. Demanding my rights, I have to advocate for myself, and I begin what, with the question, what's in it for me? What do I deserve? What do I get out of this? Surrendering my rights for the gospel begins with the question, what does God deserve? What does God want? What is going to help my brother and sister in Christ? Demanding my rights. When people encroach upon your rights, you automatically you automatically retaliate, don't you? They should have known better. When people don't recognize your rights uh, or take you for granted and don't recognize the good works you're doing, uh, uh, we do this a variety of different ways. You don't have to automatically assume that you need to retaliate. You don't have to go on the attack. You don't have to clamor for attention. Demanding my rights. When you are in charge of your own public relations, it takes a lot of your time, energy, thought, anxiety, and worry. We're stuck playing the games of image management. What will people say? What will people think? What will people do? But when you put God in charge of your PR, you just let him worry about that. It gives you greater freedom. It grows patience, faith, trust. When you put the gospel over your own rights, you're letting God worry about what you deserve. You're letting God worry about what's your fair share. You don't have to squeak so much. We just trust and we grow in patience. So now, uh, building off that in today's text, Paul continues to elaborate on Christian freedom in terms of how freedom plays out in light of the gospel. Because the gospel brings with it freedom, but it also brings with it the obligations of love. The obligations of love are something we need to take very seriously. So uh, 1 Corinthians 9, 19 says, Though I am free and belong to But the definition of freedom for us is different than the definition Paul is using. Uh, we think of freedom as no commitments and unlimited choices. Paul thinks of freedom as, I am doing this for the God I love. There's an obligation because of love. But Paul is none, under no compulsion from any other human being to make the choices that he is making. He's not forced into this. None of us are forced to be here today. 
It's a choice that we choose. It's a choice we make because of an obligation of love. See, Paul is ready to relinquish certain rights or freedoms for the sake of the gospel. And when he does this, it moves things in a different direction and produces a different kind of fruit than would be otherwise. Love is a choice, though, isn't it? It's a choice that always has to come from a place of freedom, or else it's not really love, I would say. And once you choose the way of love, love binds us in certain ways and carries certain responsibilities. A slave is someone who is not free to do what they wish. They're not free to do what they want. They have certain things they are forced to do. But the slavery Paul is describing is a deliberate choice we make in response to the love of God. See, Paul's love that binds him to the Corinthians, it's not the love that initiated the current situation. Paul makes himself a slave to everyone because he's free, because there is a love behind this situation as it is now. And the love behind all this love is the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul explicitly talks about this in 2 Corinthians when he says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich or be made rich. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. Christ set aside his rights. He set aside what he deserves in order to give us a hope, in order to give us a future. And when that love really starts to sink into you, you realize, you realize that Jesus has given you a whole lot more than a get-out-of-hell-free card. He has initiated a cycle of love that binds you to himself and to other people. I don't always have to have my way. I don't always get it right. I can set aside my wants and my desires and what I think for the sake of the gospel and for the hope of winning as many as possible. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself, I myself am not under the law. So as to win those under the law, to those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I'm under, the, but I'm under Christ's law. So as to win those not having the law. What's Paul talking about here? He's talking about cultural accommodation is what we would talk about as missionaries. Paul is talking about an allegiance to Christ that transcends cultural considerations, 
that transcends preferences. It transcends even the law of Moses. See, keeping the law of Moses is no longer for Christians the basis of our salvation. So Paul, he is prepared to eat like a Jew, dress like a Jew probably, for the sake of reaching Jews. And Paul is also equally prepared to have fellowship and do similar things with Gentile peoples. And this would particularly pertain to eating and having table fellowship. Because we've been, this whole conversation is happening in the context where he's been discussing food laws as a general theme that runs through chapters 8, 9, and 10 of 1 Corinthians. And T. Wright, he seems like a pretty smart guy to me sometimes. He had this to say about it. Being a Jew was no longer Paul's basic identity, for that is no longer who he was at the deepest level. At the deepest level, this guy is sold out for Jesus Christ. He is in it to win it. He is in it for the Lord. That is who he is. That is the law of Christ and the love of Christ living in him. Well, Paul goes on. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. Winning the weak. See, Paul comes to Corinth not with eloquence, not with confidence, not with power. He comes just with the humble message of the gospel. He says in his own letter, I come to preach the gospel not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul is specifically identifying with those who have been pushed out, with those who are marginalized, with those who are weak in the church in Corinth. These are the people, the ones who Paul is siding with. These are the people who've been made to feel bad because they don't have the right spiritual gifts. Oh, you can't speak in tongues? What's wrong with you? The people who feel inferior because they are judged as having less wisdom and knowledge, less eloquence, perhaps. Oh, I'm on Apollo's side, because Paul's really not that impressive when he talks in person. These are the people who are confused and heartbroken because they see people that they look, their brothers and sisters who they look up to participating in the pagan feasts at the, at the temples, eating their meat. <coughs> Paul is siding with the people who come to church and are told, and we'll cover this in weeks coming, I'm sorry, you showed up too late. There's no Lord's Supper left for you. Show up earlier next time. These are the very people that Paul is aligning himself with to win them, not to crush them. I've been thinking about that a lot this week. And I don't always do a very good job. To the weak I became weak. To win the weak. I have become all things to all people. 
so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I might share in its blessings. There are opinions, there are preferences, there are disputable matters, or just my own selfish pride sometimes that can get in the way of the gospel. And if you're going to be involved in the mission of God, you have to learn how to push aside your preferences, your ideas, the things that don't ultimately matter. So that the thing that people is the thing that people are grappling with is Jesus Christ himself. And not everyone is going to accept Jesus. Not everyone is going to choose Jesus's way. Not everyone is going to do the things that Jesus wants. But that's the decision people need to be making. As clearly as possible. Not my interpretation, not my preferences, not my desire getting in the way of that. That's what Paul is talking about. We remove all of those stumbling blocks so people are forced to deal with Jesus Christ himself. And it breaks our heart when people don't choose him. But when I, my strategy becomes uh, by all possible means, by all possible means, uh, then it means I have to set certain things aside and my strategy shifts, my strategy changes. I am willing to sing and learn new songs. I am willing to let new people come up here and maybe not get everything perfect. I am willing to set aside what I think should happen for the sake of winning people to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, that does not mean that we don't have a place to stand. We cannot compromise the integrity of the gospel. When you give up on the Bible as God's word and authoritative, what is left for us to cling to then? Where do we have left to stand? I don't like that. I don't want that in there. The day the church gives up on the Bible is the day a church has begun the long, slow decline to oblivion. But there are a lot of things that we do that are just the way we wrap the package. Is it really worth someone's soul to have things the way I want them and to not try things new ways? So now Paul moves the analogy along to that of running a race to help us understand the strategy we're supposed to have in living a spiritual life. 
See, Jesus wants you and I to become fishers of men and women. And so we absolutely have to be aware of the strategy that we use. Do you not, though, know that those in a race, all runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. What if you're in a race? If you're just trying to do a personal best, you train one way. What if you're in it to win the whole thing? You got to get strategic. It's a whole, we're talking about a whole nother level. How is your faith in Jesus Christ? Are you in it to win it? Or are you just trying to do the bare minimum so you get your participation trophy? It looks to me like there are a lot of churches filled with a lot of people just going through the motions. Well, if it happens to be true, I don't want to miss out. Or this is good for the kids. Or, oh, this is helpful for now. And that's about the amount of effort they're willing to put into their faith. I would say this is called having a form of godliness, but denying its power. But as your preacher, that's just me and my speculation. It's not for me to judge your heart because I don't know your hearts. I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. But the one who is, is the Lord your God. And you don't fool God. God sees the reality. He knows the sins. He knows the fickleness, the half-heartedness, the brokenness, the unwillingness to let go of the burdens that you carry. If you are in it to win, you just can't be going through the motions. It takes more than that to live a life of power and abundance in the power of the Holy Spirit. It takes so much more. The beauty of something that's completely free and yet it costs us everything. That's the obligations of love at work in our lives. Have you ever asked your kids to do something, uh, some kind of work or chores that they were not very happy about? That they didn't just volunteer and choose themselves to do this? What's the look on your kid's face when you ask them to do, wash the dishes, hey, go haul this firewood, whatever it is? Some of you see this look. You live the reality of this look. You know, the downcast, smoking shoulders, shuffling feet. What is the quality of the work that they produce in that condition? That's the way some of us treat the things of God and church and stuff. We come and, yeah, I know, I need to be here. It's so kind of a funny aside story. Uh, 
growing up in Olympia, Washington, we had a pretty big piece of property and we were out in the trees. We, the trees were everywhere, you know, big windstorms. They're probably gonna fall on the house, I thought, but hey, you don't worry about stuff like that when you're a kid. That's for parents to worry about. Covered in Douglas fir trees. And my dad, I, I think it was stress relief or something. He would just go and fall trees and he liked to have cords of wood in reserve. Lots of firewood there. So he would go and, you know, weekends or after work, he'd come in and he'd cut up, he'd fall some trees, cut them up in the nice firewood, and it was my job to haul it and stack it. I hated that job. I thought, this is, this is cruel and unusual punishment for children. You know, I'm a teenage boy. Who's got time for this? And so I remember one time he fell a couple trees and told me to go haul and stack the wood. So I'm looking and I discover, hey, there's no direct path from where those trees are to where the wood pile is. So I'm going to make things a whole lot easier and I'm going to cut a new trail in. Sounded way more interesting and fun than hauling and stacking firewood. So I'm out there, I think I cut it with the lawnmower first, then I got a hoe and I'm digging up roots and uh, getting debris out of the way. I'm smoothing it, I grab the barber broom, I make it clear. I spend hours building this path to the firewood. And then I get sick of it and I've had my fun and I go in and uh, I think I'm done. What is my dad's reaction to that? I remember he was much less impressed with my hard efforts building that trail than I was. And he sent me back outside. No, you didn't do what I said. You're going to stay out there until you get the job done. And then it goes really slow. How about, here's another one. How about you mothers trying to feed your children something healthy? When you have a toddler and it's not just chicken nuggets or hot dogs or whatever you're, what's the look on their face when you try to put the vegetables in there? We even try to sneak them in things. You know this look. Another story, I remember a babysitter and she would force upon us cottage cheese. I hated cottage cheese. And so I got really smart about it. I learned that if I had that pile of cottage cheese and I smeared it all over the plate and spread it all out, it looked like I had eaten some of the cottage cheese and there wasn't that much cottage cheese. And then I even got to a point where, and I thought I was so genius, I was taking scoops, spoonfuls, it's my little, I'm, I, I don't know how old I was, five maybe, taking spoonfuls of cottage cheese and spreading it out on the floor and the carpet underneath. How long did it take for her to figure out I wasn't actually doing what I was asked to be doing.
we approach our Lord and Father ways like this sometimes. He's giving us the good stuff, the nourishing stuff, and we turn our nose up to it. He's asking works that we would be involved in in doing. And we're like, that doesn't sound that fun to me. I think I'm going to go do this instead. We treat the Lord our God in ways like this all the time. God gives us works to do. God gives us things to nourish us. And we play all of these games. We play these games because we're not in it to win it. How many Christians treat their faith like it is a spectator sport? That if you're just there waving the right flag, you cheer a little bit, you, you offer your commentary on how the ones who are actually playing the game are doing. Oh, so-and-so did pretty good. I think I can keep supporting him as one of, one of his fans. And we think, I've waved the flag a little bit. I've done my part. Thank you, Lord, I'm, I've got enough. Here's the truth. And this is what each and every person in this room has to come to terms with. I'm not going to convince all of you, but you will face the Lord and He will judge you. See, Jesus doesn't just want fans, He wants disciples. He doesn't just want a part of you. He wants to love all of you and for all of you to be in love with Him. If you are in it to win it, your, minds shift, your mindset, it shifts and you approach things very differently. If you are in it to win it, you have to pay attention to what works and what doesn't. You have to, you have to be in it just doing more than going through the motions. There has to be heart behind it. There has to be passion. There has to be commitment. There has to be discipline. To win, you have to practice. To win, you have to do things that make you stronger. To win, you have to be strategic. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. I was talking to a runner the other day, someone who ran a half marathon, and uh, they were talking about the marathon that they, they did in the past and how just in excitement and adrenaline, they had set the pace too fast. And so they had this incredible record-breaking time the first half, but because they were not strategic in their pace, the second half of their ra the race they were running, the reserves were gone. Their tank was out of gas. They were, and it affected the overall time. That first half was great, but that second half ooh, was brutal. You got to be strategic. 
If you're in it to win it, strategy matters. You don't train for a marathon by watching Netflix, playing video games, drinking beer, and eating potato chips. And yet, when it comes to spiritual things, that's about as much effort as some people are willing to give. So many people are not disciplined about the spiritual life. It's not rocket science. Some of, we've been singing these songs since we were little kids. Read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, grow, grow. Do you know that song? It's not rocket science. If you try to live the spiritual life, live your faith as if there's no cost, if you just give it the scraps of time, scraps of effort, scraps of money, if you live your faith without intentionality and discipline, you miss the power of the triumphant Christian life that you were meant to live in the power of the Holy Spirit. Jonathan sang about that this morning. You got to trust and obey because there's no other way. They do it to get a crown that will not last but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. People are willing to put crazy amounts of effort and energy into running races. Maybe it's issues of exercise. Maybe you're dieting and you're on a really strict diet to feel better, to look better. You're working hard to save money to build for retirement. You're planning your investments. You have amazing experiences. You save up and you go on super fun and amazing vacations. You work hard to be competent and proficient at your uh, vocation. You take your job seriously. You work hard at it. You enjoy the fruit of it. If you are willing to go so hard after all of these things that in the end they don't count for a hill of beans and will not be remembered, how much more so the things of God. People are running crazy in this world to just get a few kudos. Hey, look at me. Pay attention to me. To have my moment in the spotlight. To have everyone think, oh, he's so great or so wonderful. We're clamoring for attention. And everyone's doing it. And no one's actually listening anymore, it feels like. People make all of this fuss about stuff that does not matter a hill of beans in the end. But what about the investment in things that will never fade, tarnish, or spoil? Are you investing there? Are you disciplined there? Are you in it to win it or not? Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a 
a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified from the prize. (coughs) It's not trophies for participation. It's not just a whole bunch of theories and ideas and waving the right flag. Your life, the spiritual life, is not meant to be compartmentalized away from your regular life and things you care about and are concerned about. The spiritual life is meant to be lived. And you have to get up and actually get physical. I just had a flash of like a Debbie Gibson song or something go through my head. Let's get physical, physical. I want to get, I don't know who the artist is for that. Let's get spiritual, spiritual. That's what we're being invited to. We're being invited to look at our life in the Spirit and what we do here to be a church that is in it to win it for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, because He is worth it, worth the very best we have to offer. Jonathan, you can come up. And Paul says, it's not just beating the air. It's not just shadow boxing. No, for the true Christian life, you need to actually strike a blow. You have to land that punch, brother. It's not against someone else. It's against yourself. To wake up to be disciplined, to fight for Jesus Christ and your faith in Him. You need to actually do the work. You need to actually eat what is nourishing. You need to actually go into strict training. Because we're in it to win this thing. Because Jesus Christ, He's already won it for us. Cling to that. Rely on that. Believe in that. So if you need the prayers of this church, if you want to put the Lord in on in baptism, uh, we always offer that invitation, and it's something that is important. And uh, if there's some way that we can serve you or I can serve you, uh, you can come find me down here while we stand and sing, or you can find me anytime you want. I want to be available to help you any way I can. So let's go ahead and sing together.